Hey, welcome back to another episode of Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and today's guest is my mentor. Yup. As you know, this is a leadership podcast where we tell stories about the pivotal moments that taught us the most about ourselves and our leadership. And when I'm asked to share my own examples of strong leadership and mentoring, my examples most often include today's guest. I attribute so much of my own leadership success to him and wholeheartedly believe that I am where I am today because of the opportunities he provided to me so early in my career. Ken Jokum is the most important mentor I've had throughout my career. He was my boss many years ago as he led human resources for the global firm Premier Farnell. Today, he's an assessor for Wheeling Township in Arlington Heights, Illinois, continuing to lead and serve the community. But what you really need to know about Ken, and you will hear as he shares today, is the humility in his leadership and his mentoring. No doubt he will deflect the praise I share and instead encourage my heart as he has for so many years. Listen in as we talk about the importance of relationships and the ingredients to successful mentoring partnerships, relationships like ours that have spanned over 20 years because after all, mentoring is a human relationship. Ken Jokum, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for having me and telling all those lies about me. We've had a great relationship, and I think a lot of things were accomplished in our time together, for sure. Yes, they were. And you know, now I am hosting a leadership podcast, and I have talked about you so much. I have referred to you. And so what a joy it is to have the man that I have talked so much about, my mentor, here to share some leadership insight. So you have had a really incredible career and lots of starts in interesting organizations and some surprises as well. So before we get into our leadership journey, what has gotten you to where you are today? It's always difficult to know where to start. I think part of the keystone experience was my experience in school. I spent 12 years studying for the Catholic priesthood, got a degree in philosophy, and worked toward the Master of Divinity, then decided to change direction. And at that time, didn't have any idea what the direction was. So I got in a very interesting management development program with a company called South End Corporation, 7-Eleven Food Stores, which was a Dallas-run, family-owned company, wonderful company at the time. And when I was with them, we went from 2,000 stores to 5,000 stores. But I started as a management trainee, cleaning stores and all the things you do in doing that. And at the end of that period, you got a chance then to talk to the big boss and whatever openings and promotions there were, you could go for it. So at the time, there were two things open. There was head of training, which was for franchise owners, and there was commercial real estate. And I thought, boy, I want to do that commercial real estate because the person they brought in to do it had been a senior executive at a big firm in Chicago, retired, and came back just for two years to help them open up that market. I thought, what a great time to learn something. So I go to breakfast with the big boss, and the big boss was a very nice guy, but he was known to, in the evenings, be, how do we say, overserved. So I had breakfast with him, and I could tell he had been overserved. 
and wasn't much listening to me as he was eating these hardly cooked eggs. And he finally, after talking for about 20 minutes, he finally asked me what I would like to do. And I thought, this is it. I'm ready to talk about my career in commercial real estate. And I give him my entire spiel. And Andrea, I will never forget this. He lifted up a piece of egg and he's about to eat it. And I said, so, sir, I won't mention his name. I'd like to be in commercial real estate. He said, good, you're going to go into training. And the egg plopped off of the fork <laughs> onto the plate. I will never forget that image. It's my whole career. And this guy's eggs are flopping and he's telling me, I, no, you're going into training. Well, of course, it ended up great because we got to work together and lots of other great things happened. But that was the start of something. I don't know what it told me at the time. And all your commercial real estate <laughs> dreams were dashed. That's right. And now I'm back to it, sort of. <laughs> but I spent great opportunities at Southland, eventually headed up their franchise training, and then was promoted to regional management development and training for the East Coast about that time. And we lived in Pennsylvania. And about that time, my wife and I decided that we wanted to move back. We had lived in Dallas, lived in Pennsylvania, wanted to move back to Chicago. Family was coming and we wanted to be near grandparents. So I started to look for a job, worked for Abbott Laboratories for a brief period of time in training. They wanted to start a certification program, but then was recruited with Continental Grain Company, which was really the start of truly a career in many ways. Started in training there, eventually moved into head of human resources for what they called their industries group. Continental Grain was one of the four major grain companies in the world. So I got to work in South America, Asia, Europe, the Caribbean, all in pretty much animal agriculture, as well as animal health and aquaculture and hybrid seed business. So got an experience with lots of general managers throughout that time. But those two experiences in companies gave me a chance to get two mentors that stayed with me really forever. The mentor from Southland, a guy named Lou Maddox, who, God bless him, was a wonderful man and Texan with this heavy Texas drawl that half the time you couldn't understand. What was that? You know, <laughs> you'd understand it. But he really taught me the whole process of listening, not that I learned it very well, but of listening to people and showing respect. He could show respect for the person sweeping a store floor and a chairman of the board just the same. That actually taught me something, I think, because it started to teach me, first of all, how you treat people, which was probably something I needed to learn from the standpoint of growing up kind of quickly as a kid getting into management and being entirely self-absorbed, which is probably pretty typical of the age. And Lou kind of pulled that back and was able to help me understand that. And then when I went to Continental Grain, ran into a number of good people. But one of those people that mentored the most with that was now when I worked for him and he was group president of a whole variety of these businesses. And I was one of the two people, I was the head of human resources and there was a CFO. And we comprised this international team and Dale would always say, and the cast of characters we had as executives was incredible. So we had people from the heartland of America where our businesses actually opened their day with a prayer. And they all wore at the time Try God buttons to these businesses located in New York that were in a different wavelength. 
to Europeans who were in a different wavelength. And then they threw in this group a women's handbag company, that women's fashion bags, you know. I don't even know what those things are, but women put stuff into them and they pay a lot of money for them. And the company had purchased them and they didn't know where to put it, so they threw it in with us. And the first management team we had, we had the general manager who had all this jewelry on because he was in the fashion industry and he was from New York and he's there. We had this German executive who everything was dotted right and T's were correct and you better know what you're talking. I mean, just a collection of people. And I said to him, how do we get all these people on the same team? And he always said to me, we build on their strengths. We don't force uniformity. So we're not there to get them all to be alike. We're there to get them to work together and use their strengths for this team. And he always used this example, and we've all used the example of a symphony, but a clarinet is not a violin. And if you force that clarinet to be a violin, it's not going to work. And the violin can't be a clarinet. But if you can use the best of both of those, you can blend most beautiful things you can imagine. And so he used that, and he was amazing with people. This cast of characters, nobody could believe all these people could work together. And it was truly because... He would look for their strengths and see how those strengths fit with other strengths and what worked together, as opposed to let's get them all to be the same. And to me, that goes to the mentoring relationship, because I think a mentor is not trying to produce mini-me's. What a mentor is trying to do is really bring out the best in people so that they can do something rather than making like me. You know, we're both familiar with skills training where you might take the best carpenter and have that person teach somebody how to fit a door jam. And you would say to them, make everybody do it just like you do it because it's perfect. And that's perfectly okay in that kind of a relationship. But in a mentor relationship, it's not okay to make everybody like me. It's okay to make them like themselves. The image for me, and Dale, I think, got me started on this image, The image is Michelangelo, and we created many pieces of sculpture, but the two that stick out in my mind so much are the Pieta and the Statue of David. Almost everybody has seen one or both of those, and they're beautiful. And people would ask Michelangelo, and did many times, how did you create those? And he had a couple of quotes. One is, I knew there was a statue in that stone, so I carved until I found it. And really, that's very interesting because it says to me, I know in there, in that person that I'm mentoring, that there's an angel, follow his analogy. The other thing he said that was interesting, he should have written a book on management. He said, every single block of stone has a statue and it's the sculptor's job to sculpt until you find it, which also kind of gets to this thing about we don't throw people away, right? There's nobody who comes into our office or talks to us who is no good. There's some strength, some ability that they have that just needs to be sculpted out in some way, and they'll do very well. So I think, and you can even carry that analogy a little further, because if you ask most people what Michelangelo looked like, they'd have no clue. But ask them about the Pieta or the Statue of David. Voila, I know what that looks like. And really, I think if a mentor can go away saying that somebody else look what they look like, that's wonderful. And they don't look like me. 
And that's a good thing. I think that's another kind of mentoring thing. And I think I got a lot of that from Dale Larson with my experience in continental grain. Yeah, I've always described you as I did in the intro, as someone who's really good at enabling others, providing opportunities for others. It's so good to hear you describe what's behind that, this belief in people, this belief in potential. You're a potential spotter. But the thing that has always struck me, and I talk about this because I lacked experience. I worked with you so early in my career, but I had a ton of enthusiasm and passion and the things that you created opportunities for me to step into because you had a broader perspective, you saw opportunities, you created opportunities. I mean, was that intentional? What is your thought process there as you're working with someone and you see the potential and you made it look so effortless? And it wasn't just me. I saw you do that with other team members as well. Well, that's an interesting thing. It's a very nice way you put it. But also part of that is what are the other opportunities and what are the needs and the necessities? And they also kind of factor into it because if there was no opportunity to give to somebody, that would be unfortunate, although you'd have to dig for it. I think it goes along a little bit with, are there other relationships that a mentor has with someone? For instance, is there a boss subordinate relationship? Well, there was in our case. But the challenge there was not to have you or anybody else treat me like the boss, therefore saying yes to all of my ideas and try to treat you and others like a colleague as if we could share ideas. Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes yours are wrong, sometimes you've got a great idea. We can go back and forth because if it's a boss-subordinate relationship, I think a person could really screw it up by getting authority having the mentee think they have to act a certain way because the boss. So that's a challenge, I think, for somebody who happens to be a boss. Now, if somebody's a peer or a colleague, it's a little bit different. Can we stick with the boss subordinate relationship for a second before we go? Because you bring up such a good point. And as you were talking, Ken, I remembered the feeling I had sitting in your office collaborating was very different than many other boss relationships I've had. That's a good thing for us to talk about because we can all relate to showing up to your boss's office with pen and paper or laptop. And a lot of it is, I mean, I can think of other bosses where I was just taking notes, all the things that he or she wanted me to do, right? And so they were almost like feeding me with do these things. And then I would go away and I would do those things. But that was not the spirit of our conversations at all. It was you're a critical thinker. You have a really good way of making connection points and looking at things from all angles. And you would challenge me to do the same by asking really good questions and what else and who else. And it was a very empowering conversation. I think some people would say that's management, not mentoring. And to me, they both kind of mash together because I think if somebody is willing and has the enthusiasm and intelligence to take on those things, you have to do that, I think. I think you have to let them express themselves and go after what's really going to work from them. And also maybe keep some of the rain away, the organizational rain away that's going to be there and can overshadow them. So you're a little bit of an umbrella. But there's such humility in that. I just did a session, a podcast episode with the head of DEI at Carta, and she was sharing a situation where it was a gaslighting situation and really talented, really good. And her boss was very threatened by that. 
And so he would say things like, you're not supposed to be that good. And he would invite her to meetings, but then not send her the meeting notice and then tell people she wasn't able to make it because he was threatened. Like you are, and perhaps it's your faith, perhaps it's just your spirit and how you look at the world, but there's so much of an other's focus that you bring to your leadership and your mentoring. I think there are two questions that a person needs to know about another person. These two questions I've always kind of kept in the fore. And one is, what's the purpose of a human being? What does the other person think the purpose of a human being is? I think that's important because it really kind of creates an understanding. They call that the philosophy of man. It's what is a human being for? And if I understand what you think a human being is for, and I think you do think a human being is for the accomplishment of potential, growth, and all of those things, then it's easier for me to understand where you are and where I can go and vice versa. It sounds like that person you were dealing with was dealing with a boss who had an understanding of what a human being was that wouldn't have been in flush with mine for sure or yours. And that makes for a very tough relationship almost too toxic. I think it could become, I'm not for running away from relationships, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. A weaker person could look at that and say, no mas, I'm not going to be involved in that. The second question is, how does somebody know that they know, which is in philosophy, they call that epistemology. Because if I understand that a person learns through emotion and feeling and affiliation, It's a different kind of relationship than somebody who is information-driven, fact-driven, and not related. It's the old right brain, left brain kind of thing. If I understand how somebody works, and I want to change them. I don't want them to be like me or something else. I just want to get inside it so I understand that. I've always tried to figure out those two things about people. It's very global in terms of How do people think and feel and understand? You aren't put off by an immediate negative or something going wrong. Okay, knowing that, it's a lot easier, really. It's a piece of cake at that point to say, let's take opportunity and grow and grow because I know if she stubs her toe, it's not going to be the end of the world. You know, they'll be, may say a few words, teach me some words, but that's one thing because one understands it. I think those are important. It's tough that situation you described, you certainly couldn't have that as a mentoring situation. That's an authority boss, isn't it? It's a boss who's also very insecure. And I think that's the other thing. If somebody goes into management and doesn't recognize that everybody they hire is smarter than they are, they're a fool because they are. Plus, they obviously don't have kids. You know that, right? My kids give me certain instructions, even though we're all adults, on what to do today. And I'm trying to follow those, so I'll do my best. (laughs) You're a leader who's inwardly sound, and our listeners can hear, like, you're referencing philosophy and art, and clearly you're cultured, and you're someone who focuses on your own growth and being the best human being that you can be. I do think that we have to continue to do things and we have to continue to evolve. My dad did not have a great deal of education, but was always striving. And he had a very good job. He produced films and early TV shows and so on. But he always wanted to write a book. And he wrote a book and took it to a neighbor. And this neighbor taught English at a local high school. And this neighbor just tore up the book. 
And my dad put it aside. He never wanted to do anything with it. And I have just recently started to read it. I'm going to try to find a publisher because I want to at least publish it electronically. It was his life's work. But he got intimidated by somebody else thinking that that person who, by the way, never wrote a book, was just a great English teacher. Not, Not that that's not a good thing, but I mean, come on, he shouldn't have just backed away. But he was so intimidated because he himself didn't have a lot of education, but he strove to complete that book. He was in his 80s. He typed hunting back typing at this type, I remember. And then he'd tear the page up and it wasn't right. And it's a neat story and it's a wonderful thing. It almost doesn't matter. What matters is that he continued to do it. And I guess someday I want to grow up to be like him. I guess that's the point, right? (laughs) I've retired twice. And before they asked me to run for this office, because I'd been certified in this field and had some experience in it, I thought, you know, it's public service and let's give public service a chance and see how we can support people. And lo and behold, for us in Illinois, it's a very big thing because there are some very big issues we're dealing with. Yeah. And what a way to use your strengths as a leader to give back to the community. Well, it's interesting because there really are a lot of people who want to make a difference. And one of the areas that I'm seeing right now, and I wish I had another career to do something about it, is the group of retired people who really don't want to be retired. And what they want to do is continue to contribute. And now through the grace of God and good medical practice, they're able to live longer and contribute more. I wish there was a way we could take that talent, which is out there, and do something with it. And I don't know what it is. Maybe you'll come up with that. But I think if we do, we will tap a huge resource because there are a lot of people who want to do things and do new things and learn new things. And even a few of us can use a computer. Have you heard or seen of the Arthur Brooks book, Strength to Strength? I have not. I think you referred to it in something you did. I've been talking about it a lot. I encourage you to check it out. It's from the Psalm. His whole message is just exactly what you're talking about, that thinking about the getting older phase of our life, not as decline, but as the next strength. What happens a lot, he says, is that when we start to enter that phase of our life, like we're trying to replicate the earlier strengths and we've evolved. We have a whole new set of strengths and It's a give back spirit. You and I have talked about this retired people who don't want to be retired and that is a challenge. And so as I was reading that, I kept thinking of it. There's a solution out there. Let's keep processing that and make something happen. There is, and it may relate somewhat to our whole talk about mentoring because mentor doesn't have to be boss subordinate or peer. It could be an age-related thing. It could be due to gender. I mean, there are some people who need and should have a mentor who is of the same gender because of their particular needs. And that works. And it also works, I think, with the age and even perhaps the other way around, someone who's younger mentoring somebody who's older in a different situation. I think this mentor relationship is not something that should be just a title in a business organization. I think that's a broader kind of relationship that we as human beings should have with each other and can have in a number of circumstances. I know an individual, a young person who has MS, but is very functional and doing very well and taking care of himself immensely and so on. 
and he has made the acquaintance of an older person who also has it, who's been able and lived a successful life, as many are now with MS and able to do it through the grace of medicine. It's a mentoring relationship. Who would have thought, right? But so even in those circumstances, you've got a mentoring relationship. And I think, I hope this concept of mentoring being a human relationship really continues to grow because, and I hope we don't stick it in a department, in an old musty corporation. (laughs) I mean, come on, I don't need to see a mentoring department, right? I need everybody to be a mentor. Is that not right? I mean, I think we can get so caught up in this. I love your question, like, what's the purpose of a human being? And I think being in relationship is core to who we are as people, isn't it? And so they're going to form naturally. You brought to me, and I know that you downplay it, but really that you were my boss, my mentor so early in my career. I mean, you just provided opportunities and gave me exposure to things so early on that I was able to go consult very early in my career because I had all of this experience that's just invaluable. And there was something like, what is it that you think creates connection? And should we force mentoring relationships or are they best meant to be informal and develop naturally? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think many of them will. But if we do put on a corporate hat, we're going to say, we've got these very talented people in-house. We want them to be their best. The way to make sure is to maybe establish some kind of mentoring. It doesn't mean there isn't mentoring outside or other things, but we want to make sure they get every opportunity possible and know that the opportunity is there. Just to give you a perfect example, when you and I worked together, we went through in one division, although we operated in multiple divisions, but in that one division, four different presidents in that one division in the space of time we were there. You know, in working in human resources now, in consulting, how big a deal that is, all the culture change and change of direction. My God, we went from, I don't even want to go into all the specifics, but you know, that is a very big deal. And I think when you tell people that, that's a lot of experience in a relatively short period of time. And all that culture change, at the time we were also changing the way the organization worked. the technology. There was so much change going on there. I didn't have a single dollar bill. I mean, it was just change, change, change. And that could be good or bad. It was. That's the way it was. But what a great thing to walk away with that experience. And in a sense, we were both blessed to have that experience and to go through it. And in later years say, wow, what did we accomplish? And there was a lot that we accomplished in that. You accomplished in that. And we all did. You alluded to it earlier that you shield your team from some of the noise and some of the chaos and no doubt the impact on you being in the seat you were in was even greater than all of those changes. How did you shield your team from that? Well, for one thing, not complain to them. So not take the stuff and you have to sit there and listen to me because I'm the boss. So now I'm going to dump on you all of my problems. I think that's an important thing. 
And not to hide the thing, but you know, dealing with the senior people in the organization, there's a lot of garbage or noise, maybe is a better term, that goes on that can just get people strange. It can. And you know, we've experienced that. Somebody's just goofy, and I'm going to keep that person away from anybody else, or at least do something about it. But I think the other thing is honesty, being able to honestly say, I think we had a conversation, I'm sure we had conversations like this, at the time in our company when it was recognized that the technology implementation was not going as well as it should have, and it probably never was going to go as well. I don't want to go into too many specifics, but there was a time. And remember how we had to get frank about it and talk about it. Okay, now where do we go from here? What do we do? I suspected that was going to happen from the very start because the, just to tell you secrets out of when I was hired there during the whole hiring process, they did not mention at all the technology thing that was going on. So my first week which happened to be in London, I get introduced this major technology change. Well, I find out the other, my human resource boss and the others didn't know it either. So it was like this huge shock that the organization development person, the person who ended up organization development, did not know. Now they knew there was something going on with computers, but you know it was a major change in the way the business was done. They didn't know that. They weren't brought in on that conversation. So now you go back and you've got a team and you know there's disarray. And I know there's only three wheels on that wagon. There's going to be some point in time where that thing's going to come off. But you can't share that. So you have to look at what are the skills we're going to need when that thing does start to come apart. And you were a big, big part of that. Talk about opportunities. You know, one of the things I was hoping for, and it certainly happened, was that you would be there when those wheels started to fall off because we'd be able to, as a team, we'll make it work, right? But I couldn't have dumped that on you early on and said, Andrea, the fact of the matter is this ain't going to work. So let's wait till it crashes and then we'll do something about it. You know? Yeah, because the way in which I remember it, it was, a, it was a fun challenge and we all rallied around it and it was a team effort and everyone was engaged in some way in leading through that. Yeah, that's good. You know, you're just bringing up all kinds of memories now at that time in my life. And you said earlier that mentoring is a human relationship. And over the years, there have been lots of times I've called you or reached out and like, hey, this is going on. And it's always just been really nice to have that safe place. We could not talk for months or years and then just very quickly pick up. And our relationship is certainly reflective of that. One other thing that we've never talked about that I just want to highlight is we talk so much today about holistic development and bringing your whole self to work. And I went through, I think about the years in which I worked for you. I had a big move. We moved from Chicago to Indianapolis. I got divorced during that time. I changed roles during that time. I became a manager for the first time during that time. And a mom. And a mom during that time. Yes. I also just remember how gracious you were through all of that, you know, and thoughtful and supportive. And so thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. We all go through life, right? It's not anything different for any of us in one way or another. Different shades, but still the same thing. Truly a mentoring relationship stays that way. You know, I mentioned Lou Maddox. And there was a time when we were, just tell you this story because it stayed with me and he always talked about it. So there was a time we were setting up training modules for a cash register. 
and we had a slide program. We'd put slides underneath the register, which would show produce and the person had to learn. It was just more complicated and understood. So he and the AV guy from Dallas came up to Chicago to help me set this up. Now, I am not mechanical. I can't build a thing. I just am not. And they both were. They could do anything. So they said to me, would you go get a screwdriver out of my toolbox that they had brought from Dallas? Because it sure wasn't mine. And I take this tool, take it to them, and they both broke out laughing because I had brought them a chisel. (laughs) So, you know, what an idiot. I had no idea. It looked like a screwdriver to me. I didn't know. Well, these two Texans rode me forever about that chisel. And in fact, when I left that company, they gave me a plaque with a chisel. Oh, my gosh. Which I still have. And for years afterwards, when I'd call Lou, you still got the chisel? (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it with the accent. But it was teaching me something, wasn't it? Still don't know the difference between the two. I don't know why they were complaining. But I think that does stay. But that relationship also stays, right? And the messages and things you know and you learn do stay with you forever. I just wish you could go back in time and get everybody together for one last do something. But you can't. That's not life. So, And we have the experiences to be grateful for. That's right. That's exactly what we have, you know. Ken, thank you so much. So good. This has exceeded my expectations. I'm just so grateful for our listeners to get to hear all of your wisdom and insight. And it's fun to introduce my mentor to my community. (laughs) Well, thank you, Andrew. This has been wonderful. And got to do it again sometime. Sometime within the next 50 years, all right? Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.